Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Idle Australians with James Madison and Osher Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Idle Australians where we dig deep into the archives of Australian history and uncover the untold stories from our beautiful cultural Pantheon, I'm James Matheson, joined as always by my friend, colleague, brethren, Osher Ginsberg. Brother, how are you? I'm uh, I'm actually actually pretty good, James. There's two massive sporting competitions uh, going on as we record this. This will probably go in a couple of weeks, so at least one of them will be over by then. But due to um, the toddler in my life, I'm just not watching any of the Tour de France or any of Euro 2020. And... I'm not getting any of the memes in the group chats. I think that's the worst thing. There's a lot of group chats going on and I don't understand any of the memes. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that like peak toddler wake-up time are those sort of early, early mornings when you get to flick on the telly and watch the overseas time zones of Tour de France and Wimbledon and Euros. No, it's just uh, just so much going on. I I can't quite go. Okay, honey, I'm just going to watch five hours of cycling that finishes at three a.m. But you get you pick up the child who's crying and pick them up. I'll just I'll take him for a walk or nurse him or I would sit need to wake. Yeah. I would need to wake him up to do that. But that is you do what you have to do. <laughs> you do what is required. Um, but you once said to me. Have you ever realised in a group chat that there's a group chat that exists that you're not in? Oh uh, yeah, it's the it's the unwritten rule of group chats. For every group chat you are in, there is another smaller group chat that involves everyone in the group chat except you. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I don't think we have a group chat that doesn't have you in it. I think there's a few. Not that I would tell you. <laughs> no, I know. I think there's, there were, I, I did kick up a bit of a fuss because you've got to walk the talk and I did kick up a bit of a fuss about one particular person in a group chat I'm in uh, slinging a fair amount of quite hardcore porn. I'm like, man, you just can't do that. Like, just, you can't. What are you? Come on. And um, so I'm, I'm fairly certain that there's a, another separate porn channel uh, group chat. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't know. <laughs> there is. I certainly haven't been invited to it <laughs> recently. Well, by, by, uh, it's been a long time since um, my my finger's been on the pulse with with sport. I feel a bit out of the uh, a bit out of the loop. I'm I'm aware that there's a lot of soccer and a lot of cycling going on, but I used to I used to know stuff. Don't anymore. You're not missing anything. You're not missing anything. Um, but, I mean, we should do more sports episodes. The reaction we got from people for our Sally Robinson episode, Lay Down Sally, was phenomenal. Yeah. So I think we should dig deeper into 
the archives of Australian sporting history. I'm very keen to investigate the truth and validity of David Boone's record 52 beer cans sunk on a trip from Sydney to London on an Ashes tour. Uh, we need to get to the bottom of that, so fingers crossed in an upcoming... There's got to be someone who was on the plane. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. So if you have any uh, hints or clues or leads, please let us know. As always, we're up for uh, hearing from you, idleaustralians at gmail.com. But as we are always talking about Australian institutions, Osh, I thought we'd get a bit musical this week and, and also a little bit political Yeah. by the by. In the 1970s in Australia, we had a bit of a political... Revolution and then a huge political controversy. The controversy, of course, was the dismissal with Gough Whitlam. But the the political revolution was the fact that Gough, when he was elected, was a, a giant of a man who was also really progressive and forward thinking in his vision for the country. I mean, if you look back now... At the legacy of, of Gough Whitlam, he abolished the White Australia policy, he passed Racial Discrimination Act, um, brought in free university, uh, made the pill more affordable, introduced Medicare, and he also cared really deeply about culture as well and knew that an investment in culture was an investment in community and and also the nation as well. So it was his government that put up the money, stumped up the idea for the National Gallery of Australia. So we've got Gough Whitlam to sort of thank for that. But something that's probably even more pertinent to us in the cultural realm is something else he had a vision for. And it was a little radio station that started out in Sydney in the 70s with the vision of becoming Australia's youth network. Um, It's called Double J at the time. And 40-odd years later, it's still kicking on nationwide as Triple J. But this was an institution born of a political dream, of a political idea, and funded by government money because they saw how important it was to create culture for young people and and give ourselves as Australians a sense of identity. When you think about how, I don't know, how sometimes Triple J is viewed in that it is subversive at its worst, seditious, to remember its roots is is important. To remember its roots that no, this is a this was a, a government led initiative to to recognize that reflecting the youth of the country and supporting the culture around the youth of the country and for the youth of the country is really, really valuable, not just for them, but for everyone in the cult- in the country. And, and culture and the stories of our culture, we've spoken about this before, about the, seeing the, the, the world you're living in reflected in the culture around you, whether it be art or music or film, is so vitally important. It's so vitally important to inspire every other part of society. I don't think enough about that Triple J is a, a government-mandated thing, just as is Medicare. You know, it's a thing that happened in the seventies, driven by this this landmark government, which then got they just basically pulled into the fast lane, hit turbo boost, and went. And then the country went fuck what? <laughs> Kicked them out, which is a whole other story. That's a whole other story. That is definitely worth a podcast yeah. deep dive. I reckon the dismissal itself, but 
you know, I grew up in my teenage years listening to a lot of Triple J, you know. I remember listening to You and I and The Breeders and The Tea Party and Mikey Robbins and Helen Razor yeah. and The Sandman in the Morning, you know, it was a huge part of um, of growing up in Australia and, you know, for kids in regional Australia, like, wow, the fact that they could listen to Aussie bands, bands from their area and have someone on the radio, a lifeline to a, a music scene that, that really sort of left them in many ways behind was and is enormous. I remember doing my homework in 1990, I was 16 years old and I, I was listening, I was searching around. Someone at school had said, they're doing test broadcasts. Have a look around, you can hear it. And I went all the way up to the end of the dial. I think it was 107.3, I think, in Brisbane. And I heard this song and it was Cult of Personality by Living Colour. It was a 21-minute long loop tape that they were playing to test the broadcasting. Basically, when you were testing a transmitter, you set up a broadcast and you just drive around and say, yeah, we can get it in Cleveland. Yeah, we can get it in Capalabar. Yeah, we can hear it halfway to the Gold Coast. So just seeing how far away they can hear the transmitter. And I would just listen to this loop of six songs every night for weeks because it's like so fucking exciting. Triple J is finally coming. And it changed everything for us. And this was like, it was perfect, Jim, because it was like the only music we knew was Cold Chisel, Jimmy Barnes, maybe The Angels, and just whatever, uh, Jefferson Starship, we built this city. And then within six months, it was Nirvana, Nevermind, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam. It was like this time warp of like hyperspeed cultural slingshot for the youth of the city to suddenly be exposed at such a massive level to this station. It, it can't be understated. And then so many young Australians and even older Australians have memories just like that of Double J and, and Triple J. So on this episode, we thought we'd take a little bit of an exploration with one of the actual pioneers of Triple J, Double J as it was back then. He a um, bit of a legend of the Australian music industry he is the one and only Rusty Thorpe, a.k.a. Rusty Nails. Welcome to the show, Rusty. Hey, James. Nice to meet you. What do you remember about those first early years on Double J? I mean, you started maybe a year after it had first kicked off, and it was a, a pretty loose and, and carefree environment, I imagine. Uh, yes. Well, because we, weren't, uh, we were basically put together as an act of parliament rather than uh, a radio license that was issued to a broadcaster who would then be beholden to the rules and regulations. So we were not accountable to anybody but the ABC board and uh, the ruling party of the time. Uh, so we had that sort of carte blanche to be the real enfant terrible of the radio airwaves. And we were, but in, in a good way. It wasn't sort of, it wasn't masterminded to be that. We were there to uh, appeal to young people. You know, that sort of 18 to 24 age group was our, our sort of big, big thing. Um, and we salvaged an old uh, Jew for the scrap heap uh, recording van. And we used to go out and we used to record the Australian bands in the pubs and the clubs around Sydney, you know, and back in those days, it was what? Civic Hotel, Stage Door, which is still there, the Civics, Stage Door Tavern, which isn't, 
the Royal Antler, which is um, the Astro, which isn't, it's now a retirement home. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> if some of our old listeners now living in the retirement home. <laughs> and I used to DJ there sometimes in my sort of later years when we were on the Triple J Wave Band. Um, so, I mean, there was all those sort of great pubs, but no one was playing Australian music or very, very limited amounts, you know, and community radio was still very much in its infancy. And so we had this sort of, as I said, the carte blanche to get out there and bring Australian music to the airwaves, which we did. And uh, I think we did it very successfully because uh, a lot of those bands that we were recording back then you know bless their hearts the survivors are still going and still touring year on year on year what was it at the time rusty was it that we just didn't think that we could be as good as the british or as good as the americans that therefore they weren't worth putting the effort into what why were people not playing australian music on the radio that's a hard one because i basically arrived i came for three weeks holiday back in 1976, and I'm still here. I spent the first weekend at what was then the Bondi Lifesaver, um, but it was just home to all the bands and they'd all congregate there after their gigs and it would just go on and on and on until dawn. And I heard this great music like Sherbet and John Paul Young and the All-Stars and Dragon and, and it was like, it was mind blowing to what I'd been experiencing in England. It was a totally different music scene, but fabulous. And the atmosphere was just amazing. Um, as to why it wasn't on the... So I just stayed. It was that, that was it. I then fought to stay and uh, here I am. As to why radio wouldn't play it, I don't know. Um, back then, of course, it was a different kettle of fish. I mean, first of all, it, would have, it was all tape and analogue and vinyl and... You know, there was no, 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 no digital, no, oh, look, if I, could, if I can send you a piece of music while we're talking now. But back in the day, I have to put it in an envelope, big vinyl, you know, and send it fragile to your home address and blah, blah, blah. It, the world has changed so much in that regard. And a lot of the music that was not in the pubs uh, that was being played on the radio was music that had been, if you like, chart successes in England, and they'd send the sheet music over, and an Australian artist would cover that song. But there was this undercurrent. I mean, we were just there at the right time, I think. It was that that real start of the explosion. Yes, there'd been uh, Daddy Cool and Eagle Rock and those early, and Billy Thorpe and all of those. There'd been the early pioneers, but they weren't getting on the radio. You know, they had to go overseas to try and get some success over there. And so when we came onto the airwaves, and as I say, I wasn't there for the first year or so, but the brief was, you know, appeal to young people. And young people were going out to the pubs. I mean, there was no Foxtel. There was no streaming services. There was, you know, there wasn't even computers to talk like this on. It was very much you had to go out and see it live or you put it on your record player and you played it. That was, or you put it, there were tapes then, you know, like eight track tapes and, you know, things that are now resigned to history. We had, no one was doing it. So it was, you know, everyone could go home and go, I went to this great gig tonight and listen, it's on the radio right now. <laughs> you know, we play it and we play it and we play it and we play it, you know, and we had those early, you know, in excess gigs, 
midnight oil gigs, rose tattooed, the vinyls, machinations. Oh, the list goes on. It's, it was just huge. And it, was, it became a golden age of Australian music because eventually when we transferred to the FM wave band in, gosh, now I'm taxing myself here, 1980. Bing, correct answer. Next round. <laughs> um, and, and shortly after we got on there, there were three licenses issued. There was Triple J, Today FM and Triple M. And there were three different companies back then. I know Today or whatever they're called now and Triple M uh, were two separate companies. They're now one. So they, when they came and followed us, they realized that we built up such a great following in that 18 to 24 and even up to the 35 age group uh, that they had to follow us and they had to play this music because that was the only way they could uh, drag listeners back to the commercial wave bands. It was exciting. Was there a point when you were on radio, maybe early on, where you realised that it wasn't just this amazing, fun, free job that gave bands this incredible opportunity, but that it was actually becoming part of people's lives? Yeah, well, as much as it was fun and everything, it was our jobs. And uh, the early, early guys, like Chris Winter, it was based on his show. The whole of Double J was based on his show, Room to Move. Um, And he was, you know, Mr. Silky Voice on the ABC, but he was the only guy who could play anything that, that was sort of wildly young on on the abc so that's what the whole premise of double j was based on i guess i mean more when when you would meet people out and about who were triple j fans was there a point where you realized this is an amazing job to do but this is also bigger than that for the people who are listening yeah the sum of our parts was greater than you know than we ever imagined and the bands also realized that as well i mean you know we were Uh, people like Midnight Oil perennially paid us back time and time again, not least with that amazing concert on Goat Island to celebrate our 10th birthday. You know, that in itself, to just be on, look, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, just to be on that island and see the faces of the prize winners who knew nothing about it. They were just told, you must be available this day, all afternoon and all night. And you must meet at Circular Key at whatever time, 12, 12.30. And then they got a T-shirt that said oil's on the water. But then they got on a ferry and there was no midnight oil or anything. And then we took them to the island and there was the stage and there was that familiar setup of, of the oils. And I mean, the unmistakable Peter Garrett, you know. So then they knew what was coming. So the oils paid us back when I was doing breakfast, uh, Peter Garrett came in uh, one morning to premiere, world premiere, the Red Sails in the Sunset album on the breakfast program, you know, and just having that, I mean, we were all great music fans and have Peter come in and do that uh, and send that out to everyone going, hey, guess what? We've got the premiere of the Oils album, you know, and here we go, one, two, three, let's rock. That's freaking amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. <laughs> you know, and we all used to be out there. I mean, it was, uh, I would be out four or five nights a week just 
going, it was like Monday night for Cold Chisel at the Civic Hotel, their residency. The oils on Wednesday night at the Stage Door Tavern in excess, or as they used to be, the Farris brothers in the early days, um, they would always be doing the Royal Antler in Narrabeen, uh, Rose Tattoo were at the Astra. The, the music was phenomenal as well. And because, I mean, my sort of humble opinion is because all of a sudden Australian bands could hear their music up against the likes of what were coming out then. I mean, we were playing the B-52. We were the first people in the world to play the B-52's Rock Lobster. Uh, our announcer, George Wayne, discovered Dire Straits. We, had, we were playing Talking Heads. We were playing The Clash. We were playing The Sex Pistols. No commercial station would go near those bands. You know, this was punk. This was disgusting stuff. But no, no, we loved it because we were the kids that wanted to hear it. You know, and someone we would get every week from the BBC in England, uh, like a diplomatic pouch full of vinyl. <laughs> and it was from their sessions, like the John Peel sessions, uh, which I believe the Dire Straits thing came on. We'd get like the soundtrack to... Um, uh, the old grey whistle test, all on vinyl. And we could play bits of that. So these were the undiscovered bands in England that had, were doing what we were doing with our bands here. And they were going on the John Peel program over there on Radio One. And uh, George Wayne played Sultans of Swing, so the story goes. Uh, George Wayne was one of the great Australian broadcasters. He'd come from to you, he'd come from the commercial end and he took the commercial attitude, but turned it into his own way of delivery on double J and then triple J. And he just had the greatest voice, great communicator. And he was so well respected by all the bands. As if George discovers you, you are on. He's, he's a fan forever. And he was a fan of just about every band in the land. So he played Dire Straits. And the story goes that someone from Polygram rang up and said, George, who is this? And George goes, this is Dire Straits out of England. You should sign them. And apparently the guy then rang the English Polygram and said, sign them. George Wayne says, sign them. And that was Sultans of Swing. How much of the truth there is, I don't know. But certainly the record companies got to like hearing our Australian music and would therefore be more open to, to signing Australian bands. That's for sure. That's one thing. Rusty, the, you work now, you're still in the industry. You still work in the industry. You work with Blues Correct. First. Where do you see now something like Triple G? What role does that have in the ecosystem of music and festivals and live performances? It certainly plays a great, still plays a great part in the discovery of Australian music. One of our founders, Stuart Matchett, started a thing in the early 2000s called Dig, which then became Triple J Unearthed. That is growing, continues to grow. It now has its own sort of space on uh, Freeview or something. And that is most important because it's most important that people making music hear their songs up against the accredited music. So they hear, excuse me, what's been successful or recorded by a band that is, or an artist that is successful, and they can hear their music up against that and go, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. They can hear the difference and they can, they can go, okay, next time I go in the studio, I'm not gonna make that mistake. I'm not gonna lay it down like that. 
it's very important not to just play all new stuff because there's no there's no reference point but the reference point is accredited music being played and so you know we were very proud of the fact that we also played you know quite commercial music as well you know we, we were playing the eagles and all sorts of stuff but it's important that people also in that genre starting out hear what they sound like up against them and go okay we've got a long way to go here or no we're right there we're on it so i think even now triple j is still setting new standards they are unique they're still not accountable per se so they can still do whatever they want and it will take a, a special act of parliament or something to close them down they still pioneer new music they still pioneer music that is not heard on any other station and they go out with their van and they do their live recordings the live at the wireless and all of that and they've been to blues fest and uh uh, uh, recorded for Double J and Triple J and Roots and all and all of that. It's so important that, that there is that wide catchment area of music that they put their arms around and gradually envelop and go, yeah, you're with us and we're with you from the start. Even if you're pretty, you're still not there, but by God, you know, get on the radio with us and we'll help push you along. That's where I, you know, they're still pushing that boundary and still breaking the boundaries. It's just that the boundaries have changed so much and everything is much more instantaneous. The boundaries got pushed a lot slower back then because of technology, but now it can happen so fast and it's exciting. He's a just a long-standing rock and roll soldier, isn't he? I love that guy. You can just <laughs> you just know that he's he's rolling around a festival site in a golf cart with a, a jangly laminate around his neck and a two-way, going, "Yeah, I need some more cool rooms out the back of stage six. Like, <laughs> you know that's happening. I love him. Yeah, and everyone would know him. Everyone, know, an absolute institution. Yeah, just like Triple J itself. Um, some crazy stories there, and I just love that. Um, it was as wild and as free as it was and it was put in state by, you know, yeah. a, a government. It was it was wilder and more true to itself than, you know, anything that was out in the culture at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and it's still around and it still has meaning and importance to young people, yeah. one of which is going to tell us a little bit more about where the station is at now. I mean, it started in '75. So what's that? Is forty-six. That it's uh, 46 one year, one year younger than me. Years later, still going strong, still surviving in the digital age, still adapting and evolving, and staying relevant to young Australians everywhere. And someone who knows that better than anyone is the current morning host, the incredible Lucy Smith. Lucy, welcome to Idle Australians. Hello, lovely to meet you. It's great to have you on the show, Lucy. We wanted to talk to someone who's at Triple J right now and I grew up without Triple J. Triple J showed up when I was 17. What is it like showing up to your first day at work of a radio station you've listened to your whole life? <gasps> oh, God, that's a huge question. Um I guess surreal in a way and I guess this like real fear of 
don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up, just going through your head. On the very first day when you're doing your mid-dawn, you just think of every scenario, every scenario of what could go wrong, but also just the gravity of it all. It's it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty wild, you know. And I and, and to be honest with you, I don't think it really hit me maybe until like a year and a half into my tenure there or maybe until I got a full-time gig there that I was like, holy shit, like this is major, you know. When you talk about the gravity, do you... Um you feel like there's gravity because you sort of know the the massive audience that it has and also just how dear it is to so many people's hearts? Oh, absolutely. And it's one of those things that I think everyone has an opinion on or a relationship with, even if they don't listen to the station, there's that knowledge there as well. So I think just you know, people being aware of what you do and and knowing that so many people are listening when you go from, because I started in community radio, so I was in this little Sydney bubble and I was safe and everyone had the same opinions as me. And then you go to a national station and you're like, oh, my God, like this is, you're speaking to so many different people, which I think is is ma- massive as well. But, yeah, there is certainly that, that notion that you're going into a, a place that people love and, and more than that, people have loved since before you and like since since before you've been there too so you do the morning shift and so but that means you have dr carl in your life every week which is uh, like being a weather reporter in the face of a cyclone at all times to be in the same room (laughs) as dr carl (laughs) Um, he's an extraordinary person but you get a chance to speak you get a chance to speak to people all over the country from every walk of life what do you think uh, a national broadcaster, a national youth broadcaster like Triple J does for that part of our community? I think it makes people feel connected. I know that seems, uh, it makes people feel connected and that feels like maybe a bit of a cliche response or a basic response. But I think what we're competing with at the moment is streaming services. You know, you have to think about it in a way that's what is stopping someone from just going on Spotify and hitting shuffle on their most most played, you know, and it is that that feeling of connection and hearing another human being on the radio, hearing yourself on the radio as well in like um, exchange with callers. But I think also just being that point of difference for people and I think what is so important is that connectivity as well, the fact that you could be in a very remote part of the country and know that you are in, in this really universal moment with other people in the country but also other people in the world who are able to take Triple J with them overseas. I think it is about that connectivity and knowing that you are part of this moment that so many other people are a part of at the very same time as you. I think that is the power of radio. And also just having an announcer there that is kind of like taking you along the journey, it takes the work out of it, I think, in a way for for music lovers as well. And I think Triple J is getting it better at maybe getting more diverse presenters as well. You know, I think you, you don't just want a, an East Coast presentership as well. So I think being able to talk to people in a way that, you know, cutting the bullshit I think in a way as well is quite good and also just being genuine, being ourselves. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's important. I started in radio in 1994 and so people that I knew knew people inside Triple J. There was a music director there at the time, Arnold Frollo's was his name, before Richard Kingsmill. I remember hearing that there was a story, I don't know how true this is, but there was a story that he just, at one point it just became ridiculous that Triple J wasn't playing rap, that they weren't playing any black music. 
And, you know, these are albums that meant so much to so many people in the community and they just weren't being represented. It was shoegazy, long hair, you know, Rickenbacker bass playing, twangling j- j- bands from Melbourne. But, you know, mm-hmm. where where was the hip hop? Where was the rap? Where was that music? What's the process now around adding music and, you know, you say diversity on air is important. Where, what's the process now around putting music on Triple J and is, is diversity of, of artists also a factor? Yeah, 100%. So there are a lot of different tiers to how music is added to Triple J. So uh, what I quite like about it is that it isn't just, so we've got a music team, they're in the music library um, and they kind of are a cumulative of both Triple J, Unearthed and Double J. So all of our stations coming together. And I'm in one of the meetings that they end up doing, which they put to an entire group of us. It's kind of the presenting staff, few people in programming and just kind of chatting through. And that's a really nice opportunity because it makes me be able to go, hang on, I feel like you need to push this artist or and and have that opinion. So it kind of goes to a wider group and then they do decide. And part of that decision process, which while we've been in lockdown, they've kind of been getting to almost cherry picking one of us to come into their ads meeting. And this ads meeting is seeing the way it goes down is like looking at the country. Do we have enough people from each state? Do we have enough artists that are, um, you know, linguistically diverse? Do we have enough First Nations artists? Do we have enough female, queer representing, you know, and just kind of looking. And the ads that they put together, they almost look, it's like a puzzle in a way because they're just trying to make sure that they are not necessarily ticking a box but just kind of putting together a good genre diverse list but also a list that's interesting and is challenging and reflects what people want to listen to but also makes them think, which I think is quite good as well. And also nabbing those artists that are coming up on Triple J and Earth that you think they're going to be big or that's that's a moment right there. So just kind of really taking a look at what is going to connect with the audience because it's really popular or this is doing really well on TikTok at the moment or this is an artist that's coming up that's doing super well on Spotify and their monthly plays are off the charts, but also what's new, what's different, and what are people yet to discover? And I think that's really important in the playlisting of Triple J is about discovery. That's, I think, a cornerstone of what Triple J is and what you're not going to get on Spotify is being able to kind of discover new artists, up-and-coming talent, and, you know, particularly people from remote communities as well, both as audience members but also as musicians. So, yeah, I would say that the process is very collaborative, I used to love that. Osh and I were at Channel V for quite a while and I remember on a Tuesday morning, do you reckon it was, it was the bell would ring out, music meeting! It's so good. It's one Hello. of the things I miss about everyone being in the office. We used to go on a Tuesday, have team bickies, talk about all of it. And, you know, I do, you know, you do see some of the discourse online and whatnot being like, oh, Kings Mill's an old man and he's the one that's making the decisions. It's like, no, sis. Like there are so many of us in that room, like <laughs> who are who were in on these who were in on these discussions, and yeah, mm. super important. I loved those because you get to be privy to seeing a track basically before anyone else did, you know. And you'd be like, "That's a banger. That's going to be massive." And you'd sort of state your case, and you'd hear out from other people. Occasionally, you know, you were overruled. Occasionally, you you mm. know, managed to plead your case effectively. 
Um, more often than not, you'd go, ah, it's not going to work. And then it absolutely takes <laughs> off and you're like, I know nothing yeah. about music yeah. or our audience. Yeah. It's a really collaborative, beautiful process. But I also, um, I also remember thinking, you know, it's great to be on air. It's great to interview bands. But it was also one of the things I enjoyed more than anything, the idea that, you know, your love of music wasn't just part of a collaborative process, but it was valued. I have really fond memories of that part of working in music. Yeah, no, I I agree with that sense of being valued for your opinion. You weren't just kind of a mouthpiece to or the messenger, just delivering the music to the masses. It's just, yeah, you do have an opinion. And in the end, you're the one that has to hit play on it. And you're the one that sees that direct audience reaction as well. So you've got to have some skin in the game. Yeah. And you also have to have a heart of stone for occasionally when you're like after the first chorus, you're into the second verse and you look around the room and no one's moved and you go, (laughs) we've only got an hour here, guys. And like- (laughs) When I was in radio, it would be like, eject. And they were just out of the CD player, into the bin at Channel V. It was like, FF, someone would hit fast forward and that was it and be gone. And you just watch months of an artist's work just vanish. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. And you have to just be with that. You have to be like, yes, I know, but it's not Heya from Outcast because that's what you're up against today. And I'm sorry, but you're <laughs> not going to win that fight. It can be kind of brutal. Yeah. I kind of have a bit of a 10 to 20 second rule. If it's not grabbing me in the first 10 to 20, next. There's so much that lands in my inbox that I just can't. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. I mean, like, especially when you have an entirely curated stream in the palm of your hand that you can just turn to and hit go and you know that every single song that algorithm plays you is something that you already love, you are really in a fight. We see quite a bit from uh, certain sections of the public-facing media. There's always an attack on the ABC, the ABC this, the ABC that. Do you feel that pressure at the Triple J part of ABC from the conservative side of politics or the conservative side of media? And why do you think it's important if you do? Why do you think it's important to protect Triple J uh, as far as funding is concerned going forward? I absolutely feel that. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's a piece of talkback, if it is a particular song, if it is me chatting science with Dr. Carlin and controversial topic being brought up, the amount of times I see I can't believe my taxpayer dollars are going towards this. We get it all the time at Triple J, you know, and it's just I do kind of feel that pressure as being part of the ABC and being part of, you know, the national youth broadcaster and government funded. And I think that's still what's so important though. Like like I said earlier, again, it is that connectivity, it's that reliability, it's companionship and it's being that singular voice because we're so lucky to have a youth broadcaster. Not many places do and the fact that we have somewhere that Australians can tap into, no matter what age, you know, that they can tap into and know that they are connecting with other people across the country. Yes, there is a time difference, but, you know, being able to have that I think is so uniting and I think that is why it's so important that we do kind of continue with that funding and continue being under that umbrella because so many marks are being hit, not just in the music world, but in current affairs, in news, um, in sex, like all, all those elements are kind of being hit. And I just think it's, it's the one kind of piece that so many different Australians can hold on to. And I think that's why it's, it's a cornerstone of the music world, but it's also a cornerstone of Australian media. So it has to be, yeah, it has to continue, I think, and, and receive that backing. I remember being at uh, Splendor in the Grass one year and a band was on and I, I, I can't even remember their name 
that I I didn't really know them, and they were like halfway through the first song. And the crowd were just fucking ballistic. They were going nuts. They knew every word. And I was in a sea of people and I looked around and I went, it's just, it's past me. (laughs) (laughs) It has passed me by. (laughs) And you don't know it's happening until it's happened because there was a time when we knew it all and we loved it and we lived it and we breathed it. And then just one day you're like, but it's not a bad thing. One day you're like, these are no longer my people. Yeah. <laughs> this is no longer me. What do you um, think is the turning point? Like like what why what causes you to fall out of It is if you pay particular attention to it, it is slow. Like slowly you'll start to notice um you'll see the logo of the festival and you'll slowly you'll start to go, I know everyone in that lineup and then you go, Oh yeah, I recognise half those names and you're like after a while you're like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> But Jimmy's Jimmy's right. Um, love it while you've got it because it vanishes, and um, this is the greatest time of your career, and it's it's a brilliant time. So don't take any moment for granted because it'll be the greatest thing you ever do. Oh, I promise you, I won't. I promise. Scott Dooley worked there for a few years, and um, he always says, you know, the best thing about working at Triple J, not the festivals, not the music. Not the interviews, not the bands, it was the people, um, you know, and I think um, we can attest to yeah. that. Like we made some incredible friends at Channel V because there were kindred spirits yeah. there, you know. There were people who were there. No one was there for glory or for fame or for the glamour of the industry. Everyone was there because they just loved music. They just wanted to be around music and um and when you find a crew like that i feel like you kind of have a connection for life so yeah i don't know if that's your experience there but it's it's pretty awesome it feels so good to be able to walk into a room and just be my complete self around my colleagues i just yeah i love them so much it's so good uh lucy the uh, future of the australian youth music situation is in safe hands with you there at Triple J. Thank you for fighting the good fight in the Tuesday music meetings uh, to, to keep us all on point. Thank you. Just thank you for being awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Hearing the excitement in her voice, Jim, I'm just... And 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 then hearing you talk about the music meetings, I'm just I, I still cannot believe that we won the freaking lottery and had that time working in music television that we did. Yeah, like Rusty said, you you get a time in life sometimes where you get to go to work, but it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, and I know that sounds ridiculous to most people because. I reckon ninety five percent of people never get that experience, but for you know. A few short years, that's what was happening. Yeah. We were turning up and we were you, you could not wait to get yeah. in there. And you were like, we get paid for this? Yeah. This is bullshit. We're also quite lucky because the people that were running Channel V when we were there, uh, they were the people that were brought on to take Triple J National. So that, that DNA, that Triple J DNA was infused through what we did at Channel V, so much so that they put so much importance on what – it seems that Triple J had been doing from the very start, which was 
documenting and recording the scene, getting that dilapidated music van out there and recording Rose Tattoo at the Astro, which is now Bondi Trattoria Cafe up on the Camel Parade there. But Rose fucking Tattoo used to play there. I mean, like, that's bananas, right? But they recorded that time in history, and that went all the way through Triple J, and it went all the way through Channel V. They, they, huge amounts of budget went to recording the Australian music scene, and it just, just goes to show how important that is because now we've got these, these treasured moments of what our culture was doing and it speaks so much more about what a society was doing than a 1200 word op-ed about this is life in australia in 1982 listen to the roar of a crowd between a divinals you know in the songs song breaks in a divinals gig at a pub that's what that's that'll tell you what's going on you know it's 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 incredible It it was pretty cool you know, Lucy was talking a little bit about uh, people call up and say, oh, that's how tax dollars are working. No, that's not really how government spending works. People need to educate themselves. I'm not going to go on a modern monetary theory rant here. But regardless, when you invest in music, when you invest in culture, you invest in communities. And um, maybe one day we'll have um, some governments who really understand that. But don't hold your breath because you'll probably pass out. Couldn't agree with you more, Jimmy. What a great show. I'm going to go listen to some Triple J. Thanks so much for being here. Idolaustralians at gmail.com is where we are. Big thanks to our incredible producer, Bree Steele, and our audio producer, Daryl Misson. Of course, Toe Hyde, a great Australian musician on the music, and uh, James Matheson for being you. You're great. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Good night. Or good morning, wherever you're listening. 